hard to believe that we are about, a, what, five weeks away from Easter. It's coming quickly. How many of you enjoying the uh, warm weather? Happy to see the snow go. A couple, couple weeks ago, I called Dana to the window and I said, look out there. She looked out and she said, what am I looking at? I says, look over there by that tree. She says, again, what am I looking at? There was a spot of grass that was about that big. <laughs> Boy, it was a welcome sight to see. Uh, I love winter, but I'm ready for springtime. As I announced last week, these next couple of weeks, I'm going to be sharing a series of sermons entitled Journey to Jerusalem. And we're going to be road tripping with Jesus, if you please, as he makes the journey toward his destiny at the cross of Calvary. There are some things for us to, to learn from the scriptures as we look at Jesus and this journey. Things that are not only good historical information for us, but things that are applicable to our life. Certain principles that we can apply to our living and to our walk that we may walk with Jesus along that road. Understanding that we have been commissioned to carry on his ministry after he was crucified, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended to heaven. He imparted to us the responsibility of the ministry. And so I'd like to begin today by reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Now, the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem is covered in 11 chapters of the Gospel of Luke, starting with chapter 9, actually 12 chapters, starting with chapter 9 and going all the way up to chapter 22. I don't have time to touch on every important detail that takes place during that journey, but there are several things that I think that we can draw out and apply to our lives, and so let's begin this journey together. When I was in college, several of my friends from high school, and we had done this in high school as well, we would get together periodically and we would just go what we called road tripping. We would jump in that car, we would lay in provisions and we would be off on a journey. We may be headed out to Nebraska someplace or up to uh, the uh, Lake Okoboji in Iowa or uh, up to Waterloo or, or wherever, but road tripping was fun. We spent a lot of time in the car, a lot of conversation, a lot of talk. Dana and I still enjoy road tripping. And our ministry has often taken us distances from our family so that the, the trip may have been 10 to 12 hours uh, in the, the car, 
Uh, and oh, we had some great conversations along the way. We sang some songs. We had a great time. Even when the kids were little, we would road trip. We had a little song that we'd sing. Shall we sing it, John? No? Okay. <laughs> Songs that they learned in grade school and that we seemed to incorporate into our, our musical repertoire and sang as we would road trip together. Can you imagine road tripping with Jesus? How awesome that must have been for the followers of Christ. Beginning our reading with verse 51, we're going to begin our road trip here with Jesus. Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you were of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds, the air have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. On the surface... No doubt what we find here was an exciting time for the disciples. They probably, and this is just pure conjecture on my part, but they probably just considered this a continuation of their discipleship uh, process. They had followed Jesus many places. They had been with him previously in Jerusalem. They had gone into the Judean wilderness with him. They had gone to Samaria. They had gone to Galilee. They had gone to Syrophoenicia. They had been with Jesus all along. And now he said to them, let's go to Jerusalem. But there was an urgency of what he said, and there was a reason for that urgency. Because in order for Jesus to, fill, to fulfill his destiny, it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. Notice 
that Luke said this was necessary in order for him to complete everything that was involved in his being received up to heaven. We are coming to the apex. We are coming to the point of his ministry. Now, let's lay a little background if we may. Historically and contextually, we understand that Jesus came with a specific mission for a specific purpose. The name Jesus itself defines his mission. It's taken from the Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, or Jesus. You remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, Joseph had a dream, and the angel said to Joseph in the dream that he was to take Mary as his wife, that she was going to have a son, and that he was to give the son a name. And what was the name? Jesus. And why was he to give him that name? Because he would save his people from their sins. The name Yeshua literally means God saves. This is the reason he had to go to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, we find that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word is Jesus. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Word became flesh in John, 4, or John 1, 14, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to make God approachable, knowable, but most importantly, lovable. Now, we read also in that passage that the light came into the world, but the world did not comprehend it, did not know him. In fact, they rejected him. He came to his own, but they did not want him. But it did not distract from or deter from his mission and his ministry. He came to save his people from their sins. And so when we, we read that he needed to go to Jerusalem to complete his ministry in order to be received up to heaven, we understand that he was fulfilling his destiny. Let's read again verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Note the intensity of what is being revealed to us here. The urgency of the phrase, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Let me paraphrase that if I may. He made up his mind he's going to Jerusalem and nothing would distract him. How many of you have ever set your face towards something? You had a goal in mind and nothing would deter you from that goal. Well, that is what we see 
in Jesus in this passage. Now, as we begin our road trip with Jesus, we are going to unpack two principles here that are necessary for us in our journey. And under the second one, there are going to be three sub-points. And so just if you're outlining, you're going to have two major points, three sub-points. Here we go. The most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem was through Samaria. There was so much tension, so much hatred, so much rejection of the Samaritans by the Jews that the devout Jews would not even walk through Samaria, lest they encounter a Samaritan. Even though it was the most direct route, the devout Jews would go down through Jericho and then make the ascent out of the Jordan River Valley up to Jerusalem. In other words, they would go to the east, they would go down to the south, and then they would come up a little bit from the southwest in order not to pass through Samaria. Let me give you a little bit of history to understand the hatred the bitterness, the the tension that there existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you remember when the Jews came out of Egypt, there were 12 tribes. After the desert wandering and the 40 years in the wilderness, they crossed over, they conquered the land, and each one was given a, a portion of the land or a heritage. Ten of the tribes rebelled against the other two at the time of Solomon's death. When Solomon's son came to the throne and rejected the advice of his counselors, there was a division and Rehoboam and Jeroboam became opposing kings. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, over the two tribes to the south in the area of Judea and Jerusalem. But the ten tribes following Jeroboam, and there was tension, dividing of the house, dividing of the kingdom. Idolatry set in, especially to the north, the ten northern tribes. And God repeatedly sent them prophets who they killed or rejected or ignored. And finally, God allowed the Assyrians to come down and take them captive, and they carried them off. And they forced them to intermarry. Now, God had told the children of Israel they were not to intermarry with the inhabitants of the land. He didn't want them to fall into their idolatrous practice. But the ten tribes intermarried. And they came back. They had set up at Mount Gerizim their own temple. They had their own law. They had their own priests and prophets. They had their own king. The area was known as Samaria. Their city was Samaria. And oh, they were despised by the Jews. They were called dogs. 
the Jew, a devout Jew, wouldn't talk to them. Both of them thought they were right, and so they considered the others to be apostate in error. History records that a group of Samaritans went down to Jerusalem and went into the temple and desecrated the temple with dead men's bones. Now, you know that didn't ingratiate them to their their Jewish relatives. Do you remember Jesus encountering the woman at the well? And she was a Samaritan woman. And when he spoke to her, she was surprised that a Jew would speak to her, a Samaritan. And so, that's a little bit of the backdrop that we have. And so here's Jesus in Galilee. Here's Jerusalem. And he says, we are going to Jerusalem. And the route that he chooses to take Again, which testifies to the urgency, is directly through Samaria. Now, when you road trip, how many of you make plans? You call ahead. You would like to reserve a room for the night. There are certain amenities that you may want for the night. And you make preparation. You tell them how many guests are traveling in your party, how many rooms you may need, etc. Jesus had an entourage who followed him. Not only did he have the, the 12 disciples, and so immediately you have a core group of 13, but there were others who followed him who had need in their body, were looking for healing. Those who were hungry for the, the teaching of Jesus Remember, they testified that he teaches with an authority like they've never heard before. There were others who were looking for a free meal. Wonder if he's going to break bread today, pass out fish today. How many of you go to Sam's for samples? Some of those people hung out with Jesus too. And so, Jesus, knowing that his entrance into any community, any village, was going to create a burden, sent an advance party ahead to make preparations for him. But what happened when this advance party of Jesus went into the village to make preparations? The Bible tells us that they rejected them. And the reason they rejected him is because Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now commentators come up with two theories on on the reason for the rejection. The first theory that they come up with is that because he would not go to their temple, they rejected him. Because he would not stay and worship them in their temple at Mount Gerizim and teach that they did not want him to be around. Others say this, and this is where I I tend to land on the, the matter, that because he was determined to go straight to Jerusalem as fast as possible, 
and was not going to stay around for a while and have a meeting, have some teaching, minister to people that they weren't interested in having Jesus come and be a part of them. Whatever the reason was, the fact of the matter is this, they were inhospitable. Hospitality was a a critical factor in the practice of one's faith, both to the Jew and to the Samaritan. To do a mitzvah is to do a kindness, a good deed, to show hospitality for the Jewish people. And so too for the Samaritans. But because of their inhospitality, James and John got all up in their their selves, got all excited and said, Lord, we can't tolerate this injustice. They have rejected extending hospitality to us. How dare they? And so, Lord, this one's for you. We're going to call down fire from heaven, just like Elijah did. And we are going to toast this entire village. We are going to show them what it means to reject the Messiah. The Greek word is the polylumia, and it means to disintegrate, to utterly destroy. They, in their righteous indignation, wanted to wipe out men, women, and children, cats and dogs, the entire village, so that all that was left was an incinerated ash pile. We'll get them good. Jesus, for you. Now they thought they were doing him a favor. But it's interesting to note that he rebuked them. And he said, you don't know the spirit that you are of. May I simply say that sometimes as we are journeying on the road of life, We don't always walk in the Spirit of God. And we need to do a little inventory about what spirit are we of. Anytime you want to give someone a piece of your mind, you may want to ask yourself the question, can I spare it? Anytime you feel as though you need to do a rate reduction, a weight reduction program for somebody else and take a pound of their flesh, ask yourself, do I really need it? The answer is normally no. But we can get all up in ourselves, righteous indignation, and we can do things and cloak them in spirituality when all it is is us in the flesh. And that's what had happened. James and John, the sons of thunder, 
in their impetuousness, in their harsh response, said, we are going to level this village because they would not receive you. And Jesus said, you don't understand my mission. You don't understand where we are going. You see, my mission is to help people, to show them mercy, not to destroy them. Let's look at verse 56. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Mercy is demanded of the disciple who was on the road with Jesus. If we are going to be Christ's followers, we need to demonstrate, we need to exhibit mercy. Even when we confront racial or political or religious bigotry and hatred, we need to demonstrate the mercy of Jesus. The offense of rejection that the Samaritans gave to Jesus was great. But the response, the merciful response, was so much greater. And how did he diffuse that? And here's a, a lesson for us. How did he diffuse it? He went to another village. One of the things I've learned over the years is that uh, when you're dealing with people, there are going to be times when there are disagreements, there are conflicts. But there's a simple question that I've always asked myself. And I've applied this to my marriage. I've applied this to uh, parenting. I've applied this to pastoring. I've applied this in the secular work arena as well. And the question is this. Is this issue the battlefield that I want to die on? Is it worth it? When a village says, no, you're not welcome here because you're not going to stay here, is this where he wants to die? No, he wants to die in Jerusalem because that's his divine destiny. And so he simply went to another village. Oftentimes, our issues have simple solutions if we will get ourselves out of the way. If we step back and don't demand that our pride have its day, Jesus bore the offense and stepped away from it. Listen, one of the things I understand is Satan is a master deceiver. And he loves to war against you and against me. How many of you are familiar, and maybe as children, you, you used to set up those little traps? You know, you'd take a, a box and you'd prop that box up with a stick with a rope attached to it, and you'd go hide behind a tree and you would wait for some unsuspecting critter to crawl under there. Now, I probably had ADD because I never could stay long enough for any critter to come by. But do you know what that stick is called? It's called the bait stick. It's called the scandalon. And there are times that we need to see the bait stick and step away from it. 
We don't need to fall into the trap. Their rejection was the trap for the disciples, but Jesus delivered them from it by calling them to mercy. And so let us be committed to mercy as we walk with the Lord. Secondly, as we go down to verses 57 through 62, we find that Jesus calls to commitment. Commitment is demanded if you're going to road trip with Jesus. Now, as we look at these verses, we find three individuals, and we want to point them out today because each of them shows us something. The first individual I want to look at is the one who, unsolicited, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Isn't that great? What a commitment. I will follow you wherever you go. How many of you have ever said something that you didn't know what you were saying? You didn't know what it was going to cost you. And I do does not count. Okay? You went into that with your eyes wide open, so just get over it. This man says, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, you need to understand something. The foxes of the air have their den. The birds, or the foxes have their den. The birds of the air have their nests. But the son of man does not have a place to lay his head. If you're going to follow Jesus, there may be, there will be hardship. And in the face of hardship, Commitment is required in order to fulfill the call. You ask, what hardships might there be? Jesus said to the man, homelessness. He says, I'm homeless. You want to follow me? There's a price to pay. Now, Let's just be honest with ourselves here. Homelessness is something that probably doesn't touch very close to most of our homes, most of our lives. We're going to conclude the service in a few moments and we're going to go home. We're going to enjoy a nice lunch. Uh, Sunday afternoon, let's see, uh, there's a recliner that will be calling my name and I'm going to put to practice what I saw on Sunday morning today. I'm going to exercise napping. And yeah, homelessness. I'm not going to be out there thinking, man, that wind is really cutting through. I wonder if I can find some cardboard or tin or something to shelter me. Homelessness isn't something that touches very close to the Western civilization Christian. Dana and I, over the course of the last 10 years or so, have followed the story of a, a young believer in Guinea, West Africa, who was raised up in a Muslim family, but who came to faith in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And she said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Her family rejected her. Not only did her family reject her, they tried to kill her. She had to flee for her life, leaving behind her home, 
leaving behind her siblings, leaving behind her parents, leaving behind everything that we would consider part of our security because she professed faith in Jesus Christ. They pursued her. She was kept by our missionary friends in their compound for a while. And then after the heat seemed to dissipate, she began to branch out and she was blossoming as a new Christian. And they, her family found her and they poisoned her. And last night I went back just to review her story. They poisoned her in 2014. And for the next, the last post on her was 2018. For the next four years. Unimaginable health issues, crises. All the result of her decision to follow Jesus. I will follow you wherever you may go. Jesus said, there will be discomfort if you follow me. And that discomfort may be homelessness. The discomfort of knowing that this world is not our home any longer. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Philippi, we are aliens, we are travelers. We are moving through here, but this world is no longer our home. The discomfort of giving to the work of the Lord until it hurts. The discomfort of putting oneself out for the ministry of Christ and his church. The discomfort of being out of step with modern culture. How many of you are keenly aware of that? That's where we are. If you're a Christ follower, you're out of step with modern culture. And there are times that it may feel uncomfortable, but I'll tell you what, I wouldn't trade it for anything. The discomfort of being disliked. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, commitment is required. Hardship will follow. Then Jesus turned to one who was traveling with him and said to him, follow me. And in so doing, he raised the bar of commitment a little higher. He's just said, if you follow me, there's going to be hardship. No doubt this one heard the teaching there. And then Jesus looked at him and says, follow me. Oh, great. The call to follow Jesus is a powerful call. And when you hear it, you know you will never be content, you will never be happy until you say yes to follow that call. When I was 15 years of age, I felt the call of God on my life to ministry. I grew up in a pastor's home. Guess what the last thing in the world I ever aspired to be? A pastor. I saw it from a different perspective. Those who think, boy, pastoring, that's got to be a cool job. 
You only work one day a week. You get to stand up in front of people and talk. They pay you to talk. That's a sweet gig. No, I saw the countless hours where my father would leave to be with someone in their time of need. Times when we as a family were together, but he wasn't there because he was attending to a crisis with another family. Untold meetings Meetings during the day, meetings in the evening, the services and everything. And I said, thanks God, no, I don't want to be a pastor. And at 15 years of age, I began to run from the call of God on my life. And I ran for seven years. But you know what? You can't escape the call of God. You cannot hide from God. And I tried. I tried. Jesus said to this man, follow me. And he raised the bar of commitment higher. Now, it's interesting to see this man's response. Because this man's response, on the surface, appears to tug at our heart's emotions. He says, Lord, I will follow you. Let me go and bury my father. Doesn't that just stir you? I mean, didn't God say, honor your father and your mother? Isn't that the first commandment of promise that we find in the scripture? And he says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead. How harsh. How insensitive. Oh, no. No, Jesus was cutting to the chase on the matter. Because here's what was happening. The Jews had a practice of giving the inheritance to their children while they were young and then helping their children nurture and steward the inheritance until they became older. And the children were responsible to care for their parents along the way. You remember the story of the prodigal son. He went to his father and said, give me my inheritance today. And the father did that. And so it was the responsibility of the younger person to care for the aging parent as they grew older. But the Jews also had a practice called Corban. And that's where the younger would say, we are going to give the inheritance to the Lord. And dad, there's nothing for you today. And what this gentleman was saying to Jesus is, let me go bury my father first. Most commentators feel that the father wasn't even dead yet. Lord, I'd love to follow you, but not today. Let me go home till dad dies. I've got things to take care of. Until dad dies. And Jesus said, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. The urgency of the kingdom of God has precedent over that. And he said to him, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. 
Jesus was urgent about the need of the message of the kingdom being put forth. And so too must we as we are making our journey. He's called us to commitment. We need to be urgent in the fulfillment of the commitment. Thirdly, there was another man on that journey who offered his services to the Lord. And, and this amazes me. After the one says, Lord, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus said, hardship awaits you. Another one in response to Jesus' invitation to follow him, heard Jesus say, now is the time. Let's go. Preach the kingdom. And so this one says, Lord, I'll follow you. But let me first go and say goodbye to my family. You cannot condition the call of God. There needs to be a focus. And I believe the church today needs a focus like never before. There are so many things that distract us. I, I wish you could read some of the forums that I read uh, each week. I, I'm not actively pastoring any, anymore, but I, I still like to stay current and, and read. And I tell you what, the church is convulsing today because it's unfocused. We are more consumed about methodology than we are about results. We are more consumed about the tools that we are using than about the message we are to carry. And this man says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me do this first. Let me go home and say goodbye to everybody. Jesus said to him, Anybody who puts their hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, may I confess something to you? I have never plowed a single furrow. But I've read about it. <laughs> that makes me dangerous. <laughs> Now, I understand Dana's grandfather was a farmer. I understand that to plow a straight furrow, you don't look at the nose of the tractor. You're picking out something way down the way there at the edge of the field, and you are plowing straight toward it. You're not looking off to the left and off to the right, but you are staying focused on the goal that is before you. The Apostle Paul said about himself in his own journey. He says, I've come a long way. But I haven't arrived yet. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to forget about those things that are behind me. And I'm going to fix my eye on the prize. On the goal that is before me. And there are too many people who are not focused in the kingdom of God today. Because they are busy looking at where they've been instead of where they're going. 
I understand life happens, and I understand there's injury, and there's stuff in our background that may want to drag us down and drag us back. But Jesus said, follow me. And we keep our eye on him as he goes before us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me. Do you see what I'm saying? We need focus. Keep your eye on the Lord. He is going to lead us. Listen, my friends. Jesus ministered with a sense of destiny. And it's revealed in the next 10 chapters of the Gospel of Luke. But we too have a destiny. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a called out people or his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now listen to verse 11. Er, Yes. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He calls us to follow him. As recipients of the mercy that he was committed to, we are to carry that mercy. As people who are committed to his call, we are to follow him. Enduring hardship with a sense of urgency and with a clear focus. I would challenge you today, like Jesus, to set your face to follow Him, to walk in mercy, unwavering in your commitment to Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we're inundated with many voices that call us. Hardly a a moment of our day is reserved for those quiet times where we can listen to you. You have shined your light upon us. And you've called us out of darkness into that light. But Lord, we have to make the decision to follow you. To carry the message with mercy. And commitment to endure hardship, to walk with urgency and focus. Lord, I pray that you would just quiet our spirits even in this moment in time, that we would hear your Holy Spirit as he speaks. And as he speaks, Lord, may we offer our lives in new and fresh ways to follow you. May our worship, Lord, not simply be words set to a melody, but may our worship be the cry of our heart. We will glorify you, Lord, in our living. We will serve you faithfully day by day. That what we do in word or deed, we will do for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. We will be a light in the darkness. We will be a salt to a dying and decaying world. That your kingdom may be exalted in our midst. 
Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us in these moments. Amen.